Um, it's an exciting weekend. I know for the families involved in the wedding, I remember it was just a short 32 years ago that Rosetta and I were on this very weekend uh, planning or getting ready for our wedding, 1984. It happened to be June 24th, not the exact date, but uh, certainly close enough. So uh, I know you guys are excited and want to get to the, uh, the potluck that you're having and all the other things that are going on today. So I will keep that in mind and I'll try not to keep you too long. Um, starting out here, uh, Jesus, there's an interesting story recorded in Luke, uh, chapter 4, uh, starts in about 14, goes about 30, and it's a story about when Jesus went back to his hometown and uh, preached at the synagogue there. And things were going very well. Uh, uh, they marveled at his words and they had heard the stories about him, and he um, he got to a certain point, and things turned sour after that. And the uh, folks in the congregation, this is his home church, turned against him. Uh, it says that uh, when Jesus recounted the story about the widow, he said that there were many widows in Israel, but uh, Elijah was only sent to the one in Sidon. And he said, uh, also, there were many lepers in Israel. But only Naaman from Syria was healed. So when they heard this, all, this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Verse 29, they got up, drove him out of the town, and let, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Now I bring this story up for two reasons. One is it shows how resistant we are, how resistant I am when we're presented with ideas that don't quite fit what we're, what we're taught to believe. And he was certainly doing that there. Second reason I bring, bring this up is to inform you that Downers Grove does not have a tradition where you throw the speaker over a cliff if you don't like the sermon. So I would appreciate if you keep that in mind. <laughs> but seriously, I had, uh, I had an issue. There was a, something kind of bothered me um, and you've probably heard it. We've repeated it. We've, we've talked about it many times. If you commit just one sin, you're under a death sentence from God. And I always trusted God, always believed him, but there was something that bothered me about that. But I think I was, uh, found an answer to my dilemma. And uh, it makes everything kind of fit together. Uh, and I'd like to share that with you, and maybe it will help you too. But I want to start off with two scenarios. Scenario one, you're driving along, and there's a posted speed limit that says 35 miles an hour. Maybe there's a little rain, but you're in a hurry. And you're kind of speeding to get to where you need to go. And you think about it for a minute. You look down, oh, I'm doing 50 miles an hour, but it's too late. You look in your rearview mirror, and you see that light flashing. Cop pulls you over, gives you a ticket, and there's 150 bucks that you didn't really need to spend now. Oh, that I, it happened to me. Actually, it happened to me. Remember, David, you saw me on the way to the church about a year and a half ago. Was that you that I saw? Yeah, that was us. Every once in a while, we just kind of forget and, and, um, and break the law. So $150, you're, you're just, you're, there must be an inside joke going on over here. Um, you know, it's just really what you don't need. Okay, same scenario. You're in a hurry. See a speed limit 
uh, posted 35 miles an hour and you're driving. You look down 50 miles an hour, but it's too late. This time you don't see a flashing light in your rearview mirror. You careen out of control, hit a tree, you total your car, and you're injured and in the hospital. Which would you rather have? That $150 fine doesn't look too bad right now, does it? Now, I think I'd rather have that, uh, and I'll remember that, than uh, the other scenario. We're talking about two different laws here. The first one is uh, a law that is imposed, it's, it's made up, it's written down, and there's a penalty that's imposed for it too. But it, it's a useful law, because it's supposed to prevent us from breaking that second law, which is a law of nature. In this case, it's a law of physics. Uh, friction or something like that. I'm not, not a physicist, I play one on Sabbath school. Just like my doctor uh, analogies. But we're, we're dealing with two separate laws. So the, uh, the first one, the solution to the first one is getting the ticket fixed, right? If we don't, uh, you know, we don't like to have a ticket. And by the way, how many of you were uh, brought up in Chicago or thereabouts? Um, you know what it means to get your ticket fixed, right? If, you, if, you, if somebody didn't pay the cop at that point in time and you happen to know Bruno down at City Hall or, or whatever, Chester, and, and uh, you can call down and maybe get your, your ticket fixed. But, you know, we think of God's laws as, as that way. And the solution to that law is getting your ticket fixed. Um, the second one is actually a little more serious. Uh, it, it, there are more serious consequences to it. To fix that one, getting all the tickets fixed in the world is not going to help you. You've got to improve your driving. Right? You can get all the tickets you want fixed, but if you're still driving the way you are, there is going to come a time where you're going to pay the price for that. And it's those two ways of looking at God's law that help me understand that whole death sentence thing. So, what if God's law is more like the second law? What if it's more like a natural law? In that case, um, what we need is somebody to help us stop the crash. So that's the title of the sermon, Fixing the Ticket or Stopping the Crash. What would you rather have? Let's, uh, let's look at a few, um, few passages here, or, or uh, readings here, actually. This is from Advent Review and Sabbath Herald in 1902. I'm going to just do a few of these. And she says this, There is a close relation between the moral law and the laws that God has established in the physical world. Well, that's a true statement. There's a, a close relation between the two. This one is from the Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, 109. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. So were there, no, there were no speed limits posted in heaven. There was no laws. There was no, nothing written down that they, they would realize they were under a law. It was a natural law. When's the last time that you saw a sign, a big billboard, that said, beware of gravity? <laughs> Don't jump off of buildings that might cause harm or death. Or how about this one, uh, news every morning. You get a flash in your social media. And people, it's important, good morning. But I want to remind you, you, you need to breathe today. Remember that ubiquitous uh, campaign, Got Milk? Well, we didn't see one corresponding saying, got breath. 
why don't we need to post these kinds of laws? These are natural laws that we know there are natural consequences to breaking. And I think that's the way the angels saw the moral law of God. Don't forget, we are in our fallen state right now, so it seems quite foreign to us. The uh, law of love, selflessness, uh, these things are all foreign. We have to be reminded of them. But to the angels, these things came natural because that's how God designed them. This is the best one. This is from Reflecting Christ, page 341. By the laws of God in nature, effect follows, follows cause with unvarying certainty. The reaping testifies to the sowing. Here, no pretense is tolerated. Men may deceive their fellow men and may receive praise and compensation for service, service which they have not rendered, but in nature, there can be no deception. On the unfaithful husbandman, that means farmer, on the unfaithful farmer, the harvest passes the sentence of condemnation. And in the highest sense, this is also true in the spiritual realm. So what passes the, uh, the sentence in, with a natural law? It's the harvest. It's the results of what you have done. Did you notice that um, many of our illustrations of salvation have to do with the laws described in scenario one? In fact, I can remember, and, and uh, no criticism intended. Uh, I've repeated these, I've heard these, I believe these, but um, you're speeding along and you get, you get a ticket, talking about the same scenario, and you go uh, to the court to pay your fine, and you found that your advocate has paid your ticket for you. And how many times have we heard things like that? What law is that addressing? That's addressing the first law. Jesus could tell us, you know, I could fix all the tickets you want, but I can't make you a better driver by fixing your tickets. There's something else that has to take place. Um, we've heard the, uh, the statement in Desire of Ages. It says, the law reveals the attributes of God's character, and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to beat man in his fallen condition. And you can hear that two ways. Not a jot or tittle could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. In other words, you could hear it as, you know what? God says, I posted these speed limits out here, and if you break those speed limits, I'm going to fine you. That's one way of hearing it. But another way of hearing it is like this. Joe, I am not going to change the law of physics to accommodate your erratic driving. Now, who sounds reasonable in which one? I mean, in the first one, we may think that, uh, you know, is God being a little harsh? Is he being, you know, too too picky. The second one, I'm sounding unreasonable. God, could you change the law of physics? Because I just really want to continue driving the way I want to, and I don't want any consequences. But that's how we think of it sometimes. And um, <clears throat> we, he's trying to address that second issue. And when we think of it in that way, everything changes. The dilemma is gone. Our condition is we're not really under a death sentence. We have a terminal condition that needs to be addressed, and God is fixing that. The consequences, um, we're not getting tickets, some imposed thing. We're experiencing a crash, a natural result to our lifestyle and our, our choices. Um, the uh, salvation doesn't address a legal issue. What it does is it changes us. It makes us different people. Um, <clears throat> The punishment is built into the sin. We can see that with Lucifer. 
you know all the, the, the descriptions in the Bible when somebody came face to face with an angel, especially an angel in all their glory, what did they do? They, they felt horrible. They bowed down. They, they just felt horrible about themselves. And the angels always told them, no, no, you don't need to worship me. I'm not the one you're supposed to worship. But their glory was so great. Just think of running into Lucifer before his fall. He was the greatest of angels. I mean, we would, we would bow down. We, you know, oh, so great, so, so glorious. And now he's the most despicable person in the universe. God didn't change him at all. God didn't do anything artificial to him. It was the sin inside him that changed him from the most glorious being to the most despised being in the universe. Um, what do I mean by the punishment is built into the sin? Another illustration. I go out and I buy a lawnmower. And I read the manual. It says, here's the kind of oil to use. Here's the kind of gas to put in and so forth. And I do it. Runs perfectly. Next time I go to use it, I said, you know what? I got a better idea. Orange juice is very healthy for people. I'll bet it's healthier for my lawnmower. I'm going to put orange juice in the gas tank instead of gas. What's going to happen to the, the, the engine? <laughs> Will it run? You might have ruined it forever. Um, but <clears throat> that's what I mean. The punishment is building sin. And then let's say I call the, or I email the uh, manufacturer and I say, look, um, I don't know what you guys are doing. Um, I put something that I thought was better in this gas tank, and it's not working. Um, why did you design this thing not to work with orange juice? And if they really wanted to waste their time and get back to me, they'd say, Dear Mr. Sedora, we designed this engine to run on gasoline, not orange juice, and we did not build anything into this machine to fail. If you put orange juice in, it just happens. So the, the punishment is built into the sin, not because des God designed us to fail if something happens. It just happens. If you don't run the thing the way it's supposed to be run, you're going to ruin it. <clears throat> the root of salvation, one of them, is a word that means to heal. Jeremiah says, I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord, because you are called an outcast, Zion, for whom no one cares. I sent my word and healed you and delivered you from your destruction, Psalm 107, 20. With my stripes you are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Matthew 9.12. And we're told uh, the Savior of the world devoted more time and labor to healing the sick than to preaching. God's salvation ultimately leads to a healing for our fallen condition. Some more evidence. Let's look at the, let's look at the end. Let's jump all the way to the end. And I'm going to ask you a question about this after I read these two Passages. This is from Desire of Ages, 764, and the next one is going to be from 600. <clears throat> Talking about the end this is, uh, of the wicked, this is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. And a similar, similar one from the same book, the glory of his countenance, which to the righteous is life, will be to the wicked a consuming fire. Isaiah has an interesting uh, passage on this. In Isaiah 33, 14 to 15, it says, The sinners of Zion are terrified, Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, 
who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil. It's the righteous that are living in the fire. It's life-giving to them. It's destruction for those outside of God's will. Fixing the ticket or stopping the crash. God's ultimate purpose for us is to, for us to have perf- total freedom. In, in the, the world beyond, it's going to be just like it was before. We're not going to realize there's a law. We're, it's, we're, we're going to have total freedom to do what we want to do. But we're always going to do the right thing. Not because we're told, not because we're being threatened, because it's how we are, because what we want to do. And uh, that's the point that God wants to get us to. It's, it's stopping the crash. This is not, um, by the way, kind of a, a humorous aside, if you want to realize how much freedom God gives his creation, watch animals. They make their nests wherever they want. And when they make their nests in places that you don't want, you don't say, well, it's God's will, they're here. Uh, you try to get rid of it. I mean, he gives even animals freedom to choose where to, where to uh, make their nests, where to do whatever. And we've experienced that and had skunks living under our porch and squirrels living in our are living in the porch um, that we had to get rid of. You know, we hear of things like uh, um, the robe of righteousness, and it, it depends what we're, the way we interpret that is it depends are we looking at fixing the ticket or stopping the crash? This is something interesting from Christ's Object Lessons 312. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged in his will, the mind becomes one with his mind, the thoughts are brought in captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is the perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. So do you think that's fixing the ticket or stopping the crash? This is not salvation by works, by the way. Um, we can see this, li- this worked out in the life of Abraham. He's father of the faithful. And uh, he believed God, and it was counted to him to righteousness, but he was not sinless at that point. In fact, several sins are recorded uh, of Abraham after that point. Uh, one is uh, going with Hagar. Uh, the second one was he lied again about his wife. And that was all after he was declared righteous. So God is not expecting us to be sinless. He's trying to lead us to that. But that's not what it means to be righteous. It means to trust in God. And Abraham was tested again, and he passed that test with living colors. When God said he's going to write his law in our hearts and minds, it's not without our cooperation. It was not easy for Abraham to go through that. But he trusted that God would take him through that situation, and he did. That's how God is writing his laws on our minds. He's expecting us to, to cooperate with his, um, his remedy for sin. It's still God's remedy. It's he who writes the laws. It's not us. But we still need to cooperate with him. We're going to be ending here pretty soon. I just wanted to bring out uh, one other. There's a, a, an article. And I'm not going to read the article. It's way too long to read here. But it's called, What Was Secured by the Death of Christ? It was written by Ellen White. It's from Signs of the Times, December 30th, 1889. If anybody wanted to look that up, it's called What Was Secured by the Death of Christ. And if you go through that, 
and ask yourself that question, is this fixing the ticket or stopping the crash? You'll find she talks all the time about fixing, about stopping the crash. Stopping the crash, not fixing the ticket. Um, <clears throat> some, just some brief excerpts from there. Uh, and you'll notice, also ask, who's being changed by this? Is God being changed? Is it doing something to God? Or is it doing something for us or the other created beings? The value of the law of Jehovah is to be estimated by the immense price that was paid in the death of the Son of God to maintain its sacredness. So again, think about that as you read it. Think about that. Which law would she be referring to that um, uh, Christ paid this immense price for? And in whose minds is the value of the law to be estimated? God's mind? He already knows the value of it. It's our minds. The law of God is a transcript of his character. portrays the nature of God. Although the law is unchangeable, we already talked about that, his having provided the means of salvation for the lawbreaker does not in the least attract from the dignity of the character of God since the penalty of man's transgression was borne by the divine substitute. In whose mind is this detraction, would this detraction take place? God's mind or our minds? The blood of Christ is the eternal antidote for sin. The offensive character of sin is seen by what it costs the Son of God in humiliation, in suffering, and death. All the worlds behold in him a living testimony to the malignity of sin, for in his divine form he bears the marks of the curse. So who is this seen by? The worlds. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. The angels are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden. The plan of salvation provides an eternal safeguard against affection. Without Christ, it is impossible to render perfect obedience to the law of God. And heaven can never be gained by an imperfect obedience. For this would place all heaven in jeopardy and make possible a second rebellion. And if, uh, finally, at the end, she says, The plan of salvation is too high to be fully reached by human thought. It is too grand to be fully embraced by finite comprehension. So we know that we don't know more than we do know, but that we do know enough to uh, influence, to change our life, to have a different understanding. Now, I have some homework. Whenever you're reading anything in the scriptures, if you're reading something in a magazine, a book, whatever it is, and it's on a spiritual subject, ask yourself the question, is what they're talking about dealing with fixing the ticket or stopping the crash? We're going to have our first lesson with our final song. Because within the song, it's called Redeemed, Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. So think about that. What does that mean? We could apply to it a lot of different meanings. Is it just a covering? Or is it something that changes us from within? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Hymn number 338. We'll end with that. <laughs>